When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Creative Tech Podcast, where we discuss how technology can help you to be more creative. This podcast is made by the National Centre for Creativity, enabled by AI, which is a bit of a mouthful, so we call it CBE for short. It's presented by the Director of CBE, Professor Neil Maiden. Neil, who's in the studio today? Thank you very much, Sam. Today's podcast guest is a creative force in her own right. She is a highly successful business executive who has bought, ran and sold very large media companies in the United States. She has also written a number of best-selling and award-winning books on her experiences as a female leader in hyper-competitive male-dominated American corporations. And she's a favorite, much-admired TED Talk speaker. I'm honoured to have Margaret Heffernan join us in the studio today. Hello, Margaret. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm very well. Whereabouts are you today? I am in the beautiful Somerset countryside. I live just outside of Bath. Fantastic. What can you see out of the window if we have to paint a picture for our, our listeners? I can see a rather beautiful prunus tree, all of whose leaves are bright red. I can see some roses oh, absolutely at the end of their season. And I can see a rather grey sky. Oh, grey sky. Well, at least I have blue skies overlooking Italian rooftops. So um, maybe we can <laughs> mix and match our images and reach the perfect uh, venue for this. Where are you in Italy? I, I'm based in Venice. Uh, I have a, uh, the family homes in Venice. And obviously I, I work at the University in London. Poor darling, Venice. How terrible it's, for you. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a... Uh, 
it's a it's a quality of life ambition um, <laughs> one should live where one wants to live at some point in life exactly good for you thank you so let's let's crack on we there are some topics that we we wanted to explore with you today given your vast experience and and insights um i suppose the first one was really asking about after a lifetime as a CEO in the commercial sector, you were awarded an honorary doctorate by the University of Bath in 2011, and you're now a professor of practice at the institution. Mm. And in the, in the university, I know that you're working on some exciting multidisciplinary projects that mm. you call vertically integrated. Can you explain to, to us what that means and what that is? Sure. Um, th that was not my invention. Um, I don't know who would invented vertically integrated projects. But um, what I do know is they've become a thing. And what I do know is the School of Management is the first management school in England to do one. And the basic premise is mm. that you invite students across the entire university to volunteer to take part in them. So on my project, mm -hmm. we have um, engineers, chemical engineers, mathematicians, economists, management people, all sorts of people, um, a lot of sustainability students, um, and the idea is that you bring together this multidisciplinary team and they work on a real world problem. And in this case, uh, what they're doing is they are benchmarking the CO2 emissions of the village that I live in with a view to coming up with a plan that uh, will cut down our carbon emissions and head us in the right direction towards net zero. And that means... Um, not it's not just a technical challenge which it clearly is especially for a small village um but it also means a gigantic communications challenge in the sense that you know everybody knows about the climate crisis all the evidence shows almost everybody believes it's a real thing they believe it will impact them and their lives and their children's lives and they think stuff should be done um but by and large, nobody has the faintest idea where to start. So part of what mm. interests me in it is it's probably the biggest communications failure I've seen in my lifetime. And so we're testing a hypothesis that actually, if you really start at the grassroots, and this is you know conversation after conversation, you can get somewhere. And we'll see. You know? <laughs> we'll see. Indeed. That sounds fantastic. How, how has the university reacted to you bringing together students from these different disciplines who normally interact socially as part of clubs mm. and so on, but rarely work together? How's that working? Well, it's quite interesting because, you know, as I say, the VIP is not a brand new thing. And in fact, in Scotland, they've been doing them for a couple of years. Um, so mm. they've been championing them. And they I think they first the university first started doing them last year. Um, and I really had, I, I was talking to a sustainability consultant who said, um, well, instead of just doing a random survey, which isn't going to tell you very much, you should, you, you should do a benchmarking study mm. so you know where you are and where the problems are. And you're at a university, mm. you should get students to do it for you. So I thought, wow, that's an excellent <laughs> idea. And I looked around to see where within the bureaucracy of a university something like this might be done. And I discovered the VIPs and mm -hmm. thought, wow, that's a brilliant idea because it also gives students an experience of collaborating with other disciplines, which they definitely need, will need in their working lives. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of intersection mm -hmm. of the university already doing good stuff and 
a casual conversation leading to a wonderful idea and somebody in between those two mm. things, which happened to be me, who had a burning desire to do it. So how do you find the students um, collaborate uh, across disciplines? Uh, have you found there are, where well, you talked about communication challenges, do you find there are communication gaps sometimes between them or other kinds of misunderstandings? Well, we've only really just started. I think at the moment everybody's quite keen to mm -hmm. get to know each other um, and, you know, to find ways to work together. We're splitting we have a team of 30 people so we're splitting that into dis different mm. discipline teams um for the first stage but then we'll break it up again in terms of um the research stage and then we'll break it up again for the implementation stage um and we'll see i mean i think there's gen you know i think there's a genuine feeling that everybody has a lot to learn from each other and the management mm -hmm. students mm -hmm. are very glad that there's an economist in the room and the economist is very glad that there's a management <laughs> people in the room and so on and so forth. So I think at the moment, everybody is pretty um, gung-ho about it. And the sustainability students mm -hmm. kind of sit mm -hmm. across that. So so we'll see. But I think, you know, I think the bigger communication problem or not problem challenge is um, for them to develop relationships of trust with the people who live in the village, because otherwise they won't get the data. Mm. You know, nobody mm. has to do mm. this. You know, and I think that's one reason why we are decades behind on the climate crisis, because we've tried to do it top down. And for the most part, you know, mm. it has met huge, huge, huge resistance. And it has mm. cost us, you know, a, possibly a fatal amount of time. So this is an experiment mm. to see if you do it the other way, what happens. How are your neighbours and, and the villagers reacting to this project? There must be well, a degree so of far, acceptance that very, it's taking very, place. Very, very enthusiastic. Um, we've definitely got uh, one climate denier in the village, and I'm sure there are others. <laughs> but I've discovered we mm. also have somebody who's in charge of forestry and woodlands for the local council. So that's a great source of expertise. Mm. We also have Indeed. somebody in Indeed. charge of highways in the village, so that's a great source of expertise because transportation is a big issue. We have a property developer who built one of the first lead gold buildings in the UK, so that's tremendously helpful. We have a farmer who is very, very supportive and has, keeps providing all sorts of refreshments for our meetings. <laughs> So, you know, and we have a publican <laughs> who gives us his pub, you know, where we can sit and have our meetings. So, so far, that's all been very, very mm. useful. I think, you know, again, my hunch is we will find some people eager to do stuff, some people absolutely mm. never mm. going to do a darn thing. And the challenge mm. is to is to get the big middle group, you know, but to which in corporate life yeah, is. Yeah unaffectionately known as the permafrost and see if they can be galvanized too. Because <laughs> I mean, yeah, what we know is 45% of the of our of what needs to be done to address the climate crisis depends on individual choices. So that's a lot. Mm -hmm. It means if we do nothing, we yeah, will indeed, fail. Indeed. The country will fail, the world will fail. So we have to tackle mm -hmm. this problem. Mm -hmm. Are there other similar bottom-up projects taking place in other villages and, and uh, communities uh, across the globe at the moment? Or is this uh, a pilot? I wasn't going to say a one-off, but at least uh, a pilot leading the way. 
Well, I've been talking to lots of neighboring villages. Some do absolutely nothing. Some are very, mm. very focused on transportation because unlike our village, they have exceptionally poor transportation links. So that's a gigantic mm -hmm. problem for them. So everybody's kind of, t I mean, there's everything from very active to absolutely dormant and some very mm -hmm. generalist to absolutely specialized. I mean, at my most, you know, insanely optimistic, I hope we can create a template for how you do this. Mm, I think mm. that is insanely optimistic. It's worth trying. We will certainly learn a lot mm. that I hope people can either copy or learn not to do. Well, here in Venice, we're very aware of the eco challenges with yeah. rising sea levels and changes to the lagoon. So if you do need a, a comparator site in Italy, I'm sure I could connect you to some people. Margaret, you'd have to get on an aeroplane, but the sacrifice is worth it. Actually, I could get on a train. As you could, yes. The Orient Express comes <laughs> most of the way. Exactly. I'm sure I could get sure volunteers for that. expense account. <laughs> I'm sure you could. So, so moving on to your, your latest book, uh, Uncharted, How to Map the Future Together. The book argues that business requires a more creative, risk-taking mindset, one that embraces uncertainty. You describe the work processes of artists, people who are musicians, painters and filmmakers. You also reference film director Mike Lee, who encourages actors to improvise during rehearsals. And a key observation is that uh, artists embrace uncertainty. They're nonlinear thinkers who take mm. time to reflect, incubate, distract themselves from the job at hand, even procrastinate, change their minds, change the way they're working. If this type of creative thinking is the exact opposite of the traditional business mindset, where do we as academics trying to create new services to support creativity in the workplace start? What do we do and how do we connect? Mm. Well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think in many respects, you know, the best programs for people in what are loosely called the creative industries do two things. They provide, well, they do three things, actually. They provide a space with facilities where the uh, the creative discipline can be um, explored. So that may be mm -hmm. you know, music studios, it may be, you know, sculpture studios, painting studios, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, they provide a community of sort of uh, soulmates which is clearly, demonstrably, mm -hmm. absolutely critical. And they provide mentors. So more experienced mm -hmm. artists who can provide advice, insight, pint of beer when need be, when it gets hard, because it's when it gets hard that something really interesting is happening. But these are demonstrably ad absent from most folks' businesses. Um, you tend not to see these um, studios, the, there may be some notion of mentoring, but it's probably not the form of mentoring that you're referring to here. Well, it depends on the nature of the business. I mean, I would say that in the tech businesses I ran, a lot of the, the very, very, very mm -hmm. young technologists got quite a lot of mentoring from some of the more senior ones mm -hmm. and vice versa, right? So that was very fascinating to watch. So my CTO was had been the, actually the recipient of the first ever email and had been, he worked at an engineering <laughs> firm just outside of Boston called BBN, which mm. uh, you know was one of the great pioneers of the internet. 
So mm-hmm. he was uh, just a phenomenal person, a phenomenal engineer, and also an adorable human being who was an extremely steadying influence on some of the very young uh, engineers we had. But equally, he was really interested in the new stuff that they were doing that he wasn't necessarily up to speed on. Mm. So I think in terms of community and mentoring, you know, we provided quite a lot of that. And then we did what I think all great creative organizations do one way or the other, which is they ask hard questions. And it's quite interesting because mm-hmm. one of my investors in the early days was Microsoft. And anytime Microsoft wanted to buy a, might, thought they might want to buy a company or were interested in a company, the single question they'd ask pretty much would be, what hard problems have you solved? And although mm-hmm. at the time, my, Microsoft's acquisition strategy was pretty horrible because they mostly bought companies to kill them. It's a great question. It's a really great question. Mm. And so I think one of the things that mentors can do is throw great questions at their students. So it sounds like we can observe what are the sort of the characteristics of organizations that are are creative and Mm. and seek to, are we we propagation mechanisms? Are we seeking to encourage and and repeat this behavior across businesses? Is that the, the strategy that you see? that we might take as, yeah. as thought leaders in the space? Well, I think, I mean, I think fundamentally all businesses are, should be, or could be creative. I mm. certainly think all the organizations I've worked in are creative. I think the minute you start thinking mm. it's not, you're in trouble. And and many companies don't think mm-hmm. that they're in the creative business. Um, it's one reason mm-hmm. why, you know, the creative sector is so undervalued. By the government, mm-hmm. for example, you know, why they want to cut back on these silly subjects. But actually, you know, every single object you touch in the world has been designed by somebody. And an awful lot of those mm-hmm. somebodies mm-hmm. went to art school somewhere. And every piece Indeed. of print you Indeed. read, somebody wrote it, right? So we're, in fact, surrounded by creativity, mm. you know, whether we like it or not. Um, it is an absolutely fa- fundamental mm. part of human life. So I think it's, you know, I Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm seriously worried about the government's desire to essentially defund it. Um, I think it underpins just Mm -hmm. about all the creativity in this economy and all economies. Do you think there's an issue with the the notion of the creative? I would say that a science lab is Mm. fundamentally exactly the same way that I described an art college. Right. It's full of resources. It's got hard problems. It's got a community and it's got mentors. That's a a nice observation. Do you think the the notion of the creative industries, which by implication, there are industries that are not creative, is working against us here? Yeah, hugely, hugely. I mean, I mentor um, chief executives of, you know, finance companies, of construction companies, of uh, consulting companies. Uh, they're all doing creative work. They're all trying to come up with an idea or a process or a product Mm, or mm. a message that the world hasn't seen before and needs or thinks, you know, the world Mm. might need. That's all fundamentally Mm. a creative process. I mean, you know, we all feel pretty uncomfortable when we start talking about creative finance, I think, for good reason. But on the other hand, you know, digital finance Mm. is a pretty creative industry. I mean, I think there are gigantic questions over it. 
but it's a creative industry, yeah. I think. You know, blockchain is in itself a creative concept which offers huge potential mm -hmm. to creatives. Mm -hmm. You know, is a dog food company creative? It better be, you know, as meat gets more and more expensive and they're going to have to come up with different ways of mm -hmm. feeding our pets if we insist on having so many. Uh, there better be some creativity mm -hmm. there. There better be some creativity in explaining Indeed. to people why you're know, feeding a dog a full meat diet is a you know climate mm. catastrophe. Indeed, indeed. So you you talked about um, creative spaces, uh, communities, and mentors. Our centre is very much focused on using and exploiting AI and interactive digital technologies to enhance creativity. Are we looking in the wrong place? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting. There was and may still be a company in the US and it has a different kind of structure than the rest of the world. But it was a company called TechShop and TechShop came from a really sharp observation, which was that, the, you know, that the software available to make things and the hardware was getting a lot cheaper and a lot easier to use. Mm. So CAD CAM, laser cutters, 3D printers, all this jazz. And so they set up tech shops rather like gyms where all the equipment is there and you can do with it what you want to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And prove that when you do that, people flood in and start making all sorts of incredible things. It's where, one of the places where Jack Dorsey prototyped uh, Square. Mm -hmm. And they discovered very quickly that just having the equipment wasn't enough actually having a kind of open platform to share expertise and experience was vital. But the other thing that was mm -hmm. really interesting is uh, when Forward Motor Company put a tech shop inside the company, which anybody in the company could use for anything, the number of new patents went up by 50%. So actually, oh. you know, there is a point at which if you put the right stuff in the right place, uh, you know, adjacent to people who like mm -hmm. making things, guess what happens? They start making things. Yeah. Now that lesson about sharing expertise is something that we can certainly take on board. Talking, we're going to move on a little bit now about self-belief. And I know that you, like our own team at the moment, are very interested in how we can encourage self-reliance and self-belief, which are fundamental to a person's creative process. We're exploring how built-in uh, support for creative self-belief and our creativity tools can be delivered. We were wondering whether you had any tips or tricks that you could recommend to us and indeed our listeners um, about enhancing yeah. the self-belief of people who obviously are, don't believe that they're creatives for, for various reasons. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I wonder where that idea that they're not creative came from for a start. Everybody starts out life being yeah. creative. Kids are creative. So, mm -hmm. you know, I have a big question about um, what we've done to them. I mean, I'm not, I don't think you can make people creative. I get asked, by, by the way, I get asked by companies all the time, Margaret, can you come in and make our people creative? And generally what I do is I say, okay, let's sit down and have an honest conversation about what you're doing to stop them being creative. So you load them with KPIs mm. and targets and, and bonuses and all this mumbo jumbo mm -hmm. of scientific management. That'll pretty much do it straight on. <laughs> then you give them too much work to do. So, you know, the idle thought has no chance of creeping in. Then you make them compete mm. with each other. Well, you've, you know, you've done it now. 
so so the real question is how much of that stuff that is designed to make you feel good you as so-called leader mm. how much of it can you bear to give up because if you can't there's no mm-hmm. point in me coming here and saying anything i can be as eloquent as you like nothing's going to happen and mm. i think there's another oh, issue because of course, what, you know, companies say is well we want to be innovative and creative and all this stuff um but we don't want to take any risk right um mm-hmm. and, and all creative work is inherently risky because if you're doing something that's never been done before and nobody knows what it is or if it will have any value and the only way to find out is to do it but i also think that mm-hmm. many many organizations and institutions miss something pretty crucial here which is they can see the risk of doing something new what they don't see is the inherent risk in sticking to the status quo and if you want to understand mm-hmm. that go and shop at your nearest debenhams right clung to the status quo you know until it was just dead on its feet because they stuck to what mm. they knew they stuck to what worked they stuck to what they were comfortable work with you know sales discounting competing with every other shop on the high street you know cutting costs left right and center they were really comfortable with that and they had all the metrics they needed to see that they were dying year after year after year but they didn't dare risk doing something that might have stopped that so how how do many businesses or most businesses react to your suggestion that they should stop doing things that impede their their employees creativity do they normally throw their hands up and bring in another consultant or are they receptive to um what you suggest well sometimes they do go and bring another consultant and that's great because i don't really want to waste my time if they don't mean it you know exactly. i've got a lot of stuff to do that's very cool and fun um and some of them start thinking okay well we'll do some experiments or some pilots and we'll try something and by and large then i would say they're kind of amazed you know mm. so they start doing some experiments and gee guess what people actually if you if you throw them a hard question they actually do have really good ideas wow who knew mm. <laughs> and then the issue is That's okay really so how much support are you going to give them how many resources are you mm. going to give them mm-hmm. And some of them do it very, very mm-hmm. slowly, and you know because they're you know they have responsibilities to the rest of the company and to their workforce and sometimes their shareholders, and you know and a lot of them become very excited and very positive, and all sorts of great things happen. Some do it so slowly that the really creative people who can now feel what they're capable of lose patience and leave. Oh, fascinating. We well, certainly giving me an insight we have to help our clients take stuff away as well as uh, exploit our our innovative technologies so what i want to do now is just move on to a a regular feature that we have uh, in cbay our aim is to build technologies that support and inspire people to be at their most creative selves when Mm -hmm. it comes to problem solving collaborating and everyday interactions we call it a form of creativity on demand so in this regular feature, I tend to have three questions to test your creativity on demand, mm-hmm. Margaret. And the first one is, uh, what is the single most important thing you require in order to be creative? But I suspect you've already given us uh, the answer here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really just time. I mean, I think, you know, mm-hmm. when you overwork people and they have no time to think, then they have no ideas. And, um, mm-hmm. and I just need time. I mean, I have a habit, you know, when I'm on trains, which I am quite a lot, 
of always making mm. sure that you know the first, at least the first fifteen minutes I just spend looking out the window. It's mm-hmm. astounding how fast, if you give your poor tired brain time, it will see things and how ha- and put thing put observations together, and come up with things that mm. you know if you overwork it, it absolutely mm. won't. So you just you need time. Yeah. The- the importance of incubation. So thank you. Yes, time for creativity. Second question is, if you could have any, or create, sorry, any app uh, that mm. could do anything either real or imaginary, what would it be? I would invent a jargon buster. Um, you know, we have spell uh-huh. checkers and we have grammar checkers. And I would invent something that, as you wrote, would actually stop jargon from entering into your text. I think jargon is actually an enemy of thought. I regularly hear people Mm -hmm. say globules of words or read globules of words that, as far as I can tell, mean absolutely nothing. Um, (laughs) When I finished writing Uncharted, I did a word search on it to make sure the word engagement did not (laughs) appear once. Because people use engagement like they think it's a thing, right? They don't really know what kind of a thing it is. I loathe it. And it's also, you know, when they talk about employee engagement, it's like, okay, so you just implied, if you see that engagement is a metaphor for gears, that you think your employee is a machine. We're in the wrong place already. Mm. Just cut it out. Mm -hmm. I know. And ask yourself when you hear yourself speaking, do I actually know what that mm-hmm. means? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and fantastic. a gigantic amount of academic no, you, so, and corporate language is an obfuscation. It's determined to stop people thinking. Yeah. So I would invent a jargon buster. Yeah, indeed. Well, I'll introduce you to uh, my uh, my Bayes colleague, Andre Spicer. I think wrote a book about business bullshit the other day at year, and I think yes. he had a very similar theme. So yes, jargon, the jargon buster is the, the required machine. And our last question is, if you could remove one thing from the world in order to make humans more creative, what would it be? What would you throw in the bin? Well, I have two things for that. The first is I would throw grades out of education because grades Mm -hmm. distort people's motivation and they distort their sense of their own capacity. Um, So I would throw them Mm -hmm. in in the bin. And I would also, if I could have an extra go, I would throw out any belief in the value of multitasking, which is again, another creative nightmare. It doesn't work. The Mm -hmm. more you multitask, the less you remember the material you've been handling. I mean, it's just a catastrophe. And we've been doing it for such a long time that we have tons and tons of data to show that it's a bust. I can empathize enormously as a university professor on that one, Margaret. (laughs) So thank you very much. We need more time. We need less jargon. We need to remove university grades and um, downplay multitasking. As you uh, have said, innovation is about the intersection of perspectives. This is a a great way to, I think, describe the, the collaboration that we're having here. Um, I've very much enjoyed our perspectives intersecting this afternoon. Margaret, thank you very much for being a visitor on our podcast this afternoon. Thank you, Neil. It was a fun conversation and good luck to your students and your listeners. 
And thank you for listening to the CBay podcast, a regular series of conversations to shed light on issues of creativity and how technology can enable more effective ways for humans to be creative. Please take time to like the podcast and leave a review. It really does make a difference. You can also follow us on Twitter at CBay or on LinkedIn, Creativity Enabled by AI, or drop us an email at cbay at city.ac.uk.